you will please, to open your Bible to the fifth chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 5, and in just a few moments, we're going to be standing together. We're going to be reading the first four verses of this chapter, and then the last two verses of the same chapter. Verses 1 through 4, and then verses 22 and 23. Do you know of anyone whose obedience to the Lord is seemingly unrewarded at this moment? You look at them and you realize, now here's a man or woman who is trying his best, her best, to do everything right, to do everything pleasing to the Lord. Here's someone praying for reconciliation in their home. Here's someone praying that God would use them. Here's someone who's attempting to live a righteous life, to do right. But for some reason, things aren't happening correctly in their life. It doesn't seem. I mean, it looks like their life is coming apart. Maybe you know of someone who's prayed for years that God would restore relationships in the home. And you say, that's a wonderful, faithful person. Why doesn't God answer that prayer? As a matter of fact, it seems that the more they pray, the more things are falling apart. Maybe here's a man who on his job, is seeking to be a witness. He, he wants to be the kind of witness God wants him to be. He spends time in the Word. He's a good father. He's faithful at work. He is diligent at work. But it seems that work is just one headache after the other for him. And instead of being rewarded, it seems that he's constantly getting pushed down and that people are critical of him. And he's overlooked in promotions. And you say, God, this doesn't make sense. Now, this man, if he was promoted, if, if he had another position, he could influence so many people for you. Why is his obedience going unrewarded? Do you know of anyone like that? Are you someone like that? You say, Lord, I'm doing my best. Lord, I don't know what else to do. I'm faithful to you. I'm a good steward of your resources. I'm faithful in church. I'm trying to be the kind of family person I ought to be as a child or as a parent, as a partner. I'm doing everything I know to do. Lord, why is my life falling down around my ears? Is this the way you treat people who try to serve you? I mean, when somebody really makes up his mind or her mind, I'm going to follow Jesus. Is this the way you treat your kids? Lord, why is my earnest desire to follow you seemingly unrewarded? Well, this morning I'm going to speak on this subject. When your obedience seems unrewarded. When your obedience seems unrewarded. Of course, for those of you who are New to us this morning, I need to tell you that we have been studying through this exciting book of Exodus. And now the stage is set. The children of Israel are restless. They're weary. They want to go back home where God has promised them there is a land that flows with milk and honey, the land that God promised to their forefathers. Things are tough in Egypt. They had been wonderful in days gone by, but now things are tough in Egypt. God has not only gotten Israel ready, seemingly, He's gotten Israel's deliverer ready. It's taken 80 years to do so. But now at the age of 80, Moses is finally convinced that God wants him to go back and to challenge Pharaoh. Moses' sidekick, his brother Aaron, is with him. 
The stage is set. They've come back, talked to the children of Israel. The Israelites are elated. As a matter of fact, they've had a big worship service just thanking God that the days of their bondage and slavery in Egypt are coming to an end and soon they're going to be released. Everything's ready. Moses' heart's right, it seems. The Israelites' heart is right, it seems. All that's necessary is for Moses and Aaron to go in and challenge Pharaoh, simply to say to him, Pharaoh, the time has come. We know you've enjoyed using us as your servants for a while, as your slaves. But uh, God's spoken to us, and he said, we need to go. Now, we're not asking you for a lot, Pharaoh. Actually, we're just asking you to let us go for several days out in the wilderness here so that we can worship God. Now, in a few moments, we're going to read exactly what Moses said to Pharaoh, and we're going to read some of Pharaoh's response. Everything was going well up to this moment. But now, life comes unglued for Moses and for the Israelites. Pharaoh is going to explode in anger. And instead of being rewarded for their obedience, it seems that the Israelites are going to have days ahead of them that are harder than the ones they have experienced previously. When your obedience seems unrewarded. That's the subject this morning. Let's stand together and let's read together aloud our scripture passage for today. Beginning with verse 1 of Exodus chapter 5, let's read first of all these first four verses in the chapter and let's read them aloud. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go, we pray you, three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. And the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore do you, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works? Get you under your burdens. In other words, get to work. Now, let me tell you what happens. Moses discovers that Pharaoh's anger is not only explosive, it's effective. Pharaoh calls in his taskmasters. And he said, listen, these children of Israel have got too much time on their hands. We've got to make life a little tougher for them. They're busy making brick now. Here's what I want you to do. We've been providing the straw for the brick. From now on, they've got to go out and get the straw. But whatever you do, don't diminish the daily requirements. Tell them they've got to make just as many brick as before, but they're going to have to find their own straw. Well, the children of Israel have a tremendously hard time doing this. I mean, they're trying to keep up with the daily workload. Now they've got this additional burden. And the truth of the matter is they're falling behind. And so the taskmasters go to these Israelite leaders and they begin to beat them. And the leaders, these foremen of the Israelites, go in to see Pharaoh and they say, man, what is the deal here? And Pharaoh says, you've got too much time on your hand. The only reason I know this is, you know, you were doing okay, but now you've got a couple of guys here. They want to take you out in the wilderness to worship your God. If you've got three days to waste, it's obvious to me you've got time on your hands. So take the time that you have, all that spare time, go out and get the straw. I'm telling you what, if you don't do it, you're going to be beaten worse than you ever thought you were going to be. Well, about that time, 
these men, these foremen of the Israelites, come walking out of Pharaoh's court. And Moses and Aaron are standing there. And these guys look at Moses and Aaron and they shake their fist at them and say, you know, life was tough before you got here, but it's terrible now. And I know you think you're going to be our deliverer, but look at this. You know, if you were Laurel and Hardy, this is a fine mess you've gotten us into, Ollie. I mean, that's basically what they were saying to him. Man, life has become tough. This is a mess. Why don't you guys just go off and try to deliver somebody else? I mean, we were slaves, but we weren't beaten every day like we are now. And that brings us to the closing verses of this chapter. Let's read them together, verses 22 and 23. Let's read them aloud together. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Lord, wherefore have you so evil entreated the people? Why is it that you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. And so Moses is a confused man right now. Let's pray together as we think on this subject when your obedience seems unrewarded. Father, my prayer is that in these few moments that we spend before you and in your word, that our hearts will open to you. Lord, there are some things about our walk with you that seem confusing to us, not the least of which is this issue before us, that sometimes in doing the the dead level best we can to please you, to obey you, to serve you. The end result is not that problems are immediately solved. It seems to us that things get worse instead. And all of our best efforts sometimes seem to result in nothing, if not even more difficulties. Father, show us the truth of this passage. Show us today what we need to do, what we need to remember when our obedience to you seems unrewarded. And these things we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus, who is our Savior and who is the Lord of our lives. Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. Keep your Bible open to Exodus chapter 5 as we think together this morning on this subject. When your obedience seems unrewarded, how should you respond? What would you tell someone if uh, he came to you and said, friend, I've got a problem. I'm a believer. You're a believer. I read the Bible just like you do. I'm a man of prayer. I'm a man of devotion. I'm doing everything I know to serve God, but yet my life has never been more difficult than it is now. I'm having problems at home. I'm having problems in my own life, the things I think, the things that I do. I'm having problems at work. I mean, everything seems to be coming unraveled for me, and there's never been a time in my life when I have tried more devotedly to serve the Lord. It seems that everything I'm doing for God is going unrewarded. What would you say to that friend? How would you counsel that person? Well, I think there's light for us here in this fifth chapter of Exodus this morning. So you have your Bible open to Exodus, and let's look at these principles. First of all, when your obedience seems unrewarded, you and I need to remember something. You need to remember whose 
you are. When your obedience seems unrewarded, remember whose you are. Moses has come aside. This is an incredible chapter. In fact, the book of Exodus is an incredible book because Moses is used of God as the whole, and by the Holy Spirit to be its author. You're actually reading Moses' diary here. One of the evidences of the inspiration of the Word of God that the very people, Moses in this instance, who are used of God to author it, do not often, or rather often, speak in, in ways about themselves that are unflattering. And so Moses here is just opening up his heart. I mean, several of these chapters that we've read end with questions. Lord, why? Lord, what? Lord, how do I respond? And so Moses is letting us see into the intimate aspect of his life. I mean, he's telling us some things about himself that you and I might be embarrassed to tell others. And so here in the closing verses of this chapter, we find Moses alone with the Lord. He's got some big questions. The Bible says, however, that Moses returned unto the Lord. He had been abused by Pharaoh. He had been bewildered by Pharaoh's treatment. Pharaoh hadn't just summarily let the people go. And now he was being abused by his own countrymen. And so the Bible says, what did Moses do? Moses returned unto the Lord. The first thing you need to do when your obedience to the Lord seems unrewarded is to remember whose you are. I'm going to ask you someplace in your heart or maybe there in the margin of your Bible to do something that will help you remember this principle. Would you write down these words? My determination to do right. My determination to do right. Even when things go wrong is directly related to my confidence that I belong to a holy and sovereign Lord. Let me say it again. My determination to do right, even when things go wrong, is directly related to my confidence that I belong to a holy and sovereign Lord. Holy means God always does everything right. Sovereign means God is in charge of everything. And so when I determine that I'm going to do right, even when my life is falling down around my ears, it is based on faith. My confidence that the Lord I belong to is holy. He does everything right. And sovereign, he's in charge of everything. He is overall. Now, let me give you a personal, perfect illustration of this. You know, sometimes when things don't go right, we feel like God owes us a few allowances. Uh, he, he ought to compromise with us just a little bit. For instance, I talked to a man one time whose uh, problems in his family were, were created by um, an office romance in which he was involved. I asked him about that, and, and here's what he said. He said, you know, Brother Tom, he said, uh, I, I profess to be a believer in Christ. And he said, uh, I, I'm trying to do everything I know that, that, that's right. But he said, things got a little tough at home. I mean, life got a little difficult for me at, at, at home. And he said, uh, I prayed about it, and I trusted the Lord, and I asked the Lord to straighten things up. And he said, the truth of the matter is that it seemed that, that my wife and I, we just couldn't communicate. 
And he said, you know, God knows a man and God knows a man's needs. And, and so I just struck up this relationship at, at the office. He said, it, 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 it's sort of God's gift to me in light of the fact that my wife won't communicate with me. Now, after I had told him that he was crazy, I began to point out to him the folly of his thinking. What is he saying? He's saying, because I can't have life the way I think God ought to give it to me, God, ought to, God owes me a few. It's like the guy who said, well, hey, listen, I stayed off the bottle for, for years and tried to serve Jesus, and then my company went bankrupt. I mean, God can understand why I decided to turn back to the bottle. It is as if, you know, God, you owe me a few because, after all, you haven't treated me the way I think you're supposed to. Now, what's going to keep you acting right when things go wrong? There's only one thing. It's your confidence that you belong to a holy and sovereign God. You are His. In the midst of this terrible problem, at least Moses did this right. He went back to the Lord. He said, Lord, this is a me and you issue. It's not a me and Pharaoh issue. It's not a me and Israelite issue. It's not a me and my wife issue. This is a me and you issue. Because I'm yours. I belong to you. I have a friend, Dr. Avery Willis. Many of you know Dr. Willis, who's vice president of the International Mission Board. Avery and Shirley, his wife, both were students at Oklahoma Baptist University just down the road here, and that's where they fell in love, and uh, that's where Avery proposed to her. And he told me one day that um, it wasn't long after he had proposed to her and she had said yes and they were excitedly preparing for the marriage to come, that he said, I had a serious talk with my wife-to-be. And I had said to her, I'm quoting Avery here, he said, I, I said, I've got to tell you, there's someone else in my life. And it's going to come maybe as a shock to you that I love this person even more than I love you. I don't think it's going to come between us. I think it's going to help us, but I just need to lay this on the table. And the truth of the matter is, whatever this person asks me to do, I'm going to do in spite of my love for you. He said, for a few moments, Shirley looked at me, and you can imagine, with tremendous perplexity almost anger, and then it dawned on her that he was speaking about the Lord. As much as I love you, you can be confident in this. The first love in my life is the Lord. When young couples stand here and I perform their wedding ceremony, as I will several times in the next several weeks, one of the things I will say to them is, listen, there is no safer place in your heart for your mate than second place if God is in first place. But now if you get in first place or if someone else gets in first place or if they themselves get in first place, then you're very vulnerable in that relationship. The best place is second place if God's in first place. Now let me give you an illustration of this. You see, some of you... You wonder about your wife. You wonder about your husband. You wonder about your friends. You wonder about your family. I want to tell you something. The best thing you can do in your life to build confidence and strength in a relationship is to show those people God is your master. He owns you. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. Joseph is away from home. 
He's been mistreated by his brothers. I mean, after all, God owes him something for that. He finds himself as a servant in Egypt in the house of a man by the name of Potiphar. He does an incredibly good job, so the Lord ought to owe him something for that. Potiphar's wife, who obviously is stunningly beautiful, comes to him, makes overtures frequently toward him. And finally, in a rush of emotion, she, she literally lays hands on him as she, she seeks to persuade him to enter into a relationship that would be a total violation of his master's trust. And what does Joseph say? He doesn't say, well, you know, hey, listen, this is bad hygiene. Hey, we could get a social disease. Hey, listen, this is, you know, let's find a place and a time where nobody else is around. His basic response is this, I belong to God and I fear God because I'm his. Now, do you get the picture? The point is that when you find your life falling down around you, you need to take time to remember whose you are. I belong to a holy God. And the word holy means God, you are right, you do right. You never do wrong. Secondly, I belong to a sovereign God. God, what's happening to me is no surprise to you. My heart rests in you because you have said that you are working all things together for good to those who love you, to those who are the called according to your purpose. I may be perplexed right now. I may have been praying for years and my family situation hasn't been resolved. I may have been faithfully witnessing in work and life is getting tougher for me. I may be trying to witness to my friends at school and I have become the laughing stock of them all and the butt of the jokes in the professor's classroom. That all may be true, but listen, you remember whose you are. You belong to God. Take your questions to Him. Secondly, remember what He has said. Remember what he has said. Notice again verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you so evil entreated this people? Why have you treated the Israelites so badly? If Moses had uh, taken a few moments at that time to reflect upon his journey with the Lord he could have very easily recalled that on more than one occasion, the Lord told him this was going to happen. This shouldn't have been a surprise to Moses. In chapter 3, when Moses is out there visiting with the Lord at the burning bush and before Aaron has ever showed up, God specifically says in verse 19, you're going to challenge Pharaoh and Pharaoh is not going to let them go. Moses, remember that. I told you in advance that that was going to happen. In chapter 4, verse 23, look at the verse, or rather verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go to return into Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh which I put in your hand, but I will harden his heart and he shall not let the people go. Moses, this shouldn't become a surprise to you, be a surprise to you. Think about what I have said. All right, listen again. Remember whose you are. Remember what he has said. All right, here's something you need to write down in your heart, maybe in the margin of your Bible. Listen, here it is. When God's ways 
seem contradictory to my expectations, I must take time to reflect on his promises, remembering that he always keeps his word. Let me say it again. When God's ways seem contradictory to my expectations, what do I do? I must take time to reflect on his promises, remembering that he always keeps his word. This year, by the grace of God, I firmly believe we are going to walk out of the bondage and slavery of indebtedness as a church and into the glorious freedom of no debt except to the Lord, no debt to others except to love them and to witness to them. And at that moment, over a million dollars a year will be put into ministry and missions and doing things around here and to this place that will enable us to facilitate reaching more people for Jesus. I mean, it will be a wonderful moment for us. Someone said to me recently, Brother Tom, that is a mighty big goal. What if, you know, it doesn't happen? How will you feel on January the 1st? I said, dear friend, let me tell you something. Let's just suppose you're right. Let's suppose that, that it doesn't happen. In that case, my sadness over it not happening won't be anything like the great sadness you will feel if it does happen and you didn't participate. If the record shows that it does happen, but that there was no sacrifice on your part, no operating with, in concert with God on your part. And so I firmly believe, I mean, really, down in the deepest parts of my heart, I keep searching, Lord, is there any lack of resolve? Is there any lack of commitment? I believe that God is moving us to wonderful freedom. I didn't know. I don't think any of us knew. We didn't comprehend back years ago when this building was being built. You know, we didn't know anything about the the uh, oil bust, you know, and I was off in Denver, Colorado, pastoring a church just back from the mission field when the pulpit committee contacted me. I wasn't thinking about oil bust or anything else. But you know something, an interesting thing occurred. I'm just sort of opening up my heart here for a few minutes and showing you this principle right here. An interesting thing occurred. For 21 consecutive days, some of you all will remember this, in conversation with various members of the pulpit committee at that time, searching for a pastor, I said, no, I just can't bring myself to do that. Now, there were several reasons, uh, which I'll not go into, for, for my reservations, my reluctance. I mean, we'd only been at the church there in Denver a couple of years, and God was blessing mightily. And so I just said, no, I just don't feel that it would be right for me to come and become the pastor at First Southern. Every one of those days, for 21 days, three weeks, each time I would share that with a committee member, then I would go back before the Lord on my knees in prayer, and God would give me a Bible promise saying, go. And I would say, no. The next day, no. And then God would say, go. No, go. No, go. Now, you know, to Moses' credit, he seems to be a lot more malleable than, than I. I was very diffident, intractable, you know, stubborn. 
But this happened for 21 days. And so at the close of that 21 days, there were 21 different places in my Bible where I had underlined and circled passages in which the Lord by his Holy Spirit had said, go, this is a task, I, I, I want you to do this, this is my calling for your life, go. And at the close of that 21 days, well, then God pretty well convinced me. I was down in a hotel room down in Houston, Texas, on my face before God, and God said, look, you can not go if you want, but you will be out of my will if you do not go. So the end result was that I came here, and for the next almost 14 years, uh, for the last almost 14 years, I'm your excuse for a pastor. I'm the guy that's kept you from having a real pastor uh, up here. Now, for what it's worth, I didn't know, those of you who were here at that time, we didn't know what we had ahead of us. We had no idea. I, I was really unaware of the extent of our commitments at that time. And, and uh, we didn't know about the fact that the, that the energy crisis was going to occur. And I mean... Uh, things would just go down the tubes in, in, in uh, terms of uh, the ability to prosper here. We were so related and so much of our economy was based on uh, petroleum at that time. We didn't know what we were going to be going through. And there were many moments, here we are now on the verge of having this thing, of being released from the yoke of this bondage, but I will tell you that there were many moments in these past almost 14 years now when personally I despaired. And the, listen, the absolutely the only thing that would keep me going in moments like that was to go back through the Bible, look at those 21 promises, and remember what God had said. And some of you all are about to despair in terms of your marriage. Some of you are about to despair in terms of your job. Some of you are about to despair in terms of your finances. Some of you are about to despair in terms of your physical health. Some of you have reasons that I have not even touched upon. And in your heart, you're beginning to question God. You're saying, God, I am trying to obey you. Things seem to be falling apart. What do you need to do? Number one, remember whose you are. Number two, remember what he has said. Now, that's predicated upon the fact that you've spent time listening to what God has said. When Livingston, the great explorer and missionary in Africa, was at a very critical moment thinking that perhaps his life was at stake because of the news he had heard about some antagonist coming in his direction, he sat beneath a tree, prayed, and went to sleep. A friend of his said, Sir, how can you go to sleep? We need to be up and on our feet and running from the enemy. He said, God has said in his word, Lo, I am with you always. That's the word of a gentleman, and a gentleman never breaks his word. So he is with me. Remember whose you are. Remember what he said. And finally, remember why you are here. Remember why you are here. Let's look again at verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord. That's whose he was. And he said, Lord, why have you treated us so poorly? He needs to remember what God said. God said, this is going to happen this way. And then he says, why is it 
that you have sent me. Well, Moses uh, needed to remember his conversations with God because on frequent occasions in his conversations with him, God had said, Moses, I'm sending you to Israel for a specific purpose. You are to take Israel out of bondage and out of slavery in Egypt. You are to deliver them. You are to be their leader. Moses, this is your purpose in your life. Moses, this is what I have taken 80 years to teach you. 40 years in Egypt. You are a military genius, by the way. Extra biblical history tells us. A military genius. And now, Moses, 40 years here in the wilderness leading sheep. You've learned something about relationships. Now, Moses, after 80 years, this is my purpose. And if you will look back through the previous chapters, you'll find how many times God said, Moses, this is what I want you to do. This is my purpose for you. And when things seem to be falling apart at the seams in your life, you're doing your dead level best to make, to obey God, to serve God, to live right, to do right. And you not seem to be rewarded for that. It just seems like it's not paying off. You need to remember whose you are, what he said, and why you're here. What is God's purpose in your life? I hope somewhere God will let you write this down on the notebook of your heart a sense of ultimate purpose will guide you during the most discouraging of times. I want to say that again. I want you to write it down. A sense of ultimate purpose will guide you during the most discouraging of times. When things really get tough, you can make it if you have purpose. If you have a reason. Why do people take their lives? Many times it's because they do not see a grander purpose that's bigger than the pain they're in or the loneliness that they're in or the anxiety that they're in at the moment. They do not see a larger purpose beyond that. One of the great atrocities of this generation is assisted suicide. I believe that the judgment of God will rest upon our nation as we endorse, and I see state after state endorsing this idea of assisted suicide. Why do people call for assisted suicide? You say, well, it's because they're in terrible, terrible pain. Pain you do not understand, Brother Tom. No, that's not why they call for that. Because you see, whoever those people are, I can promise you, there are others out in the world who are in more pain, but they determine to stay alive. Why? Because they have a sense of purpose. They have a sense of mission. They have a sense of value in life. It's not just the pain. It's the lack of purpose, the empty meaninglessness that brings people to consider that their life is unimportant. And when your obedience seems unrewarded, you need to remember not only whose you are and what he said, but why you're here. What is your purpose in life? Many of you perhaps have, have read the writings of Viktor Frankl, a, a Jewish philosopher and, and uh, a psychologist to some extent who was interred during the horrible days of the Holocaust in Nazi concentration camps. 
And he was a student of human nature. And he noticed that there were some people who, who it, it seemed that the worse things got, the, the more they thrived. And there were others who it seemed that when the gates to the prison were closed, they began to shrivel up on the inside and die. He said, I, I studied those people. Why was it that some seemed to make it and, and others, even without the horrible punishment, just began to die the moment the gates were closed? And he said, it all goes back to purpose. Purpose. And he put it this way. He said, I've discovered that if a man has a why to live for, he can make do with almost any old how. I've discovered if a man has a why to live for, he can make do with almost any old how. Why has God got you here? What is your purpose in life? Whose lives is God wanting you to touch? Even if you look to others and to yourself as an absolute failure, is it possible that in reality history will accord you as a person of great success? Because while your life was falling down around your ears, you continued to serve God, to follow Him. You never compromised His principles. You had a why to live for. Life's not always going to be a bed of roses for you, even if you do your best to serve the Lord. And when your obedience seems unrewarded, remember this, remember whose you are. Remember what he said, and remember why you're here. Father, I pray, trusting that these moments will be moments when you'll find us humbly submitting ourselves to you. Lord, bring to this altar men and women whose hearts have been touched, who are ready to decide, instead of wallowing in indecision, who are ready to decide, who are ready to plant uh, themselves, to drive down a stake. Lord, those who need to receive you as Savior, as their Master, and the forgiveness and cleansing which you offer, Lord, may today be that moment. Lord, those who know that you're speaking to them, sense, Lord, deep in their inner heart, this is where I belong. This is where we can serve. Lord, may they, may he, may she determine this morning to become a part of this church family. Lord, may those who need to do business with you at this prayer altar come to this altar and Lord, those who have questions, may they be as open and honest as Moses said, Lord, I'm perplexed. I don't understand this. May they on their knees in prayer hear you say to them, look, I'm running the show. You serve me. Let me write the last chapter of your life. Lord, I trust your Holy Spirit will bring each of us to a decision this morning. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Your head is bowed. Your eyes are closed. We're going to stand together in a few moments. We're going to sing together a wonderful hymn of invitation as our choir leads us and we'll be singing with them. But this is a personal invitation to you. When we stand, I want to encourage you right now as you're seated, when we stand, as a part of standing, just to step to the aisle, make your way forward to register the invitation, your response to the invitation. We're going to say yes. You may need to come as a family or as an individual to say, look, 
Uh, God's leading us to this church. This is where we really sense God wants us to be. And I would encourage you, you may be a family of one person, a single person. You may be here with your family, maybe a couple. God's speaking to your heart. Would you do that? Would you decide? You may need to just reach over and grab someone's hand and say, you know, shall we do this? And look for that squeeze of affirmation so that the moment we stand, as we're standing, you can just step to the aisle. As the choir sings, you can just step to the aisle and make your way forward. And you're saying yes to Jesus. It could be that you're here this morning and you'd say, Brother Tom, I don't know if I died for sure that I'd go to heaven. I sure want to settle that. Well, you can this morning. You see, Jesus has paid the wages of your sin in your place. He died on the cross for you. He's risen from the grave. He's alive. Now, here's what he said. If you will believe him, if you will trust him, receiving him by faith as Savior and Lord of your life, acknowledging him as your Savior and Lord, if you will do that this morning, you can have forgiveness and cleansing of sin, abundant and eternal life. You say, well, how do I start? I would encourage you right now to say in your heart, Dear God, give me the grace to step forward and to just say to one of those counselors, I want to trust Jesus today. And you see, God will acknowledge your prayer of faith. He, even as you're coming down this altar, to this altar, you'll know that Christ is Savior and Lord of your life. And just come and say to one of these counselors, I'm trusting Jesus today. I'm trusting Jesus today. They'll talk with you, pray with you, give you some information to help you grow. These others will be coming. These who are coming to join the church will be an encouragement to you. God will use that as a witness. And they're going to come say to one of these counselors, look, we're joining the church. We, I want to plant my life here. There'll be others who'll be coming. People who'll be coming to this altar to pray. And still others will be coming. Some answering the call of God. Some asking for counseling in some specific area of life. I'm going to ask those who've joined our church in recent days, if we've not introduced you, come be seated over here to your right where it says seating for new members. You see, it's your invitation time to say yes to Jesus. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. Let's stand quietly to our feet. Father in heaven, I pray, trusting your Holy Spirit will move mightily in this place this morning. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin singing as we sing. These counselors are here. Would you come join them right here at this altar? I'm saying yes. We're saying yes to Jesus.